Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everybody. Um, Today we're starting a brand new series called Crux. Um, And I really love this word crux. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says it's a vital, basic, decisive, or pivotal point. So we talk about, you know, what is the crux of the argument? What is the main point? What is the, the foundational truth that you're establishing everything else upon. And the second definition for crux is a cross. And I just love that, that play on words that we, we have an opportunity to explore there. That for us as Christians, the cross is at the center of everything we believe. The cross is the crux of our faith. In, in theology, in practice, everything we are as Christians is moving towards the cross and everything stems from the cross. And so through these next eight weeks, we're gonna be exploring some of those foundational truths of the faith, um, but always with this eye towards how they speak towards the cross and how they emanate from the cross. Uh, Today, I'm really excited. We're gonna start by talking about the Trinity. How many of you love the Trinity? Yeah, all right, hopefully it's everybody, but maybe by the end it will actually be everyone. Um, So I grew up in a faith tradition in the Anglican Church um, where the Trinity is very upfront and center. In all of our prayers in worship, we pray these Trinitarian prayers, which is to say that we're actively engaging the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so I grew up from a very young age uh, memorizing these prayers and kind of looking at the world through this lens of a Trinitarian God. And I would even say that I was praying to a Trinitarian God before I understood what a Trinitarian God really is. But it was something that had become ingrained and worked into the fabric of my faith. And I know for many of you that grew up perhaps in a liturgical setting, maybe Catholic or Methodist or Lutheran or Orthodox or uh, Anglican or Episcopalian, you maybe had that same foundation. How many of you grew up in, in something of a liturgical church, quite a few of you. Um, So maybe some of those prayers um, that have sort of been written on your heart over time really speak to that Trinitarian nature. So I want us to actually, uh, instead of me just praying for us, we're going to be praying together, and I want to use the first couple prayers that we find in uh, the Anglican and Episcopalian service. So I want to invite you to stand with me. Um, And if we were at the Cathedral of St. Luke downtown, um, this is how we would start worship. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, it's going to be up on the screens here, and there's kind of a call and response play to this. And so get your gusto. Let's, let's, let's do some liturgy. <coughs> Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be his kingdom, now and Amen. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then we, we don't sing this hymn, we say this hymn together. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, 
you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. You can be seated. And so you can see, even in these prayers, we're constantly in, interacting with a Trinitarian God. It's kind of the foundation to me. It's almost like when you peel back all the layers of how we talk about God and the language and what God does for us, and you peel it back, at the core is this Trinitarian nature to God. It's the foundation of our understanding of who He is. And I think this is so important that we start our journey in this series with the idea of Trinity because what you believe about God matters because it affects how you see everything else. What you believe about God is so rooted deep down inside of who you are that you may not even be aware of it, but it affects how you see everything else. It affects how you read scripture. It affects how you worship. It affects how you pray. It also affects how you see other people. It affects what you think is going on in the world right now. And I think one of the most fascinating disciplines that we can take upon ourselves as Christians is whatever we believe, whatever you believe politically, whatever you believe religiously, whatever you believe, and all of these little nooks and crannies of the things that we kind of ascribe to or we kind of put our identity in, if you can work that back to the core question of theology, what is God like? What is God? When I say this, when I believe this, or when I choose to live my life that way, what am I saying about what I believe God is really like? And I think it's a powerful exercise for us to be able to do that, because what you believe about God is going to kind of eke out sideways whether you realize it or not. And so I think seeing God as a trinity at the core of our faith helps us to shape our faith. It helps us to shape how we see ourselves. It helps us to shape what we're doing in this room together. It helps us to shape not only how we see the world, but what our call is uh, to be part of that world, to come alongside of God in his agenda of rescuing the world. Because I think this is so interesting. Not only is God a person by which we have a relationship, but God is almost like these glasses, these lenses through which you peer at everybody, everything else. And many of you in this room, you're wearing glasses. You're not constantly aware of the glasses on your face but they actually affect the way that you see everything else. And if you're not aware of the lenses on your face, you can just kind of take for granted how you're seeing the world. And so it's just as important for us to talk about God as a person as it is to see that God is the way in which we perceive everything else. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the, the doctrine of the Trinity is, but then I want to talk about what I think the real power of uh, this idea is when we talk about God. We have to remember that in the biblical narrative, there were a lot of gods. Everybody had a god. It was very in vogue in the time. Everybody had their own different gods. And what we're really seeing, especially in the story of the Old Testament, is a group of people that have been set aside by the one true God, and over time, he's gradually working out of them this idea of polytheism, that there's all of these other gods. And we have a lot of uh, information about what everybody else was believing in the day in Mesopotamia. And, and there was a couple kind of unifying factors that we see all around the world uh, in how early human beings believed about the gods. Number one, the other gods, they're part of creation, okay? 
they're, they're kind of part of the created essence of the thing. So you've got a fish god, and you've got a rock god, and you've got a stream god, and you've got some gods that are up in the stars, and you've got gods that are on top of the mountains. But there's all of these different gods, but they're always referenced by other objects in creation, that the gods are created things. And essentially what this is saying is the gods are kind of like us. They're kind of like animals and plants. They're just kind of bigger and stronger and more powerful. The second thing is that the gods are pretty separated from us. Um, they're not particularly interested in human beings. And so this is where you find in a lot of early religions that you have to kind of do something to get the gods to pay attention to you because they're not, they're not there otherwise. They live up on the mountain, they're hiding in the rivers, whatever it might be. So you've got to kind of do the rain dance to get the gods' attention so they can give you what you need especially if it's like the harvest god or the rain god or whomever it is, whatever you're trying to do, your life is just kind of pittering along and you're trying to get the gods to pay attention to you to give you favor. And then conversely, if things are going wrong in your life, well, it's because the gods don't favor you or they don't care. And so you must have done something wrong uh, in order to, to earn their disinterest. And so you can kind of see that a lot of those foundational understandings from other religions, from kind of pagan religions, how often those have influenced our Christianity. How many of you have, uh, you have Norse descendants? How many of you are Swedish, Norwegian, Danish? We've got one. Guten Tag. <laughs> Lorena is like six foot five, so she's probably also from there. How many of you are, are Celtic in nature? Anybody? Irish, Scottish? Okay, how many of you uh, Italian or Greek? Okay, how many of you are from South or Central America? A couple of you. So we see in all of these different areas these kind of ideas of God. But a lot of times what happens when we don't have a firm foundation of understanding what the Christian God is like is that those other versions of gods kind of get wrapped up in the mix. And before long, the God that we see revealed in Jesus kind of sounds like Thor. Or he kind of sounds like Zeus. Uh, because we, we, haven't, we don't have enough information, we haven't been led deep enough into the realities of when Israel and then Jesus and then Christianity talk about God, this is what we mean by the word God. And I think that's actually part of the crisis that we have in our country today, is we can all, you know, many of us can agree on the word God, but we don't know what God we're actually talking about. And actually the word God becomes this placebo that keeps us from really engaging in what we really talk about. And so the doctrine of the Trinity, this vision of God, was actually developed uh, by a bunch of bishops in 325 AD. So we're considerably after the time of Jesus. Uh, so full spoiler, there's no place in the Bible where you're going to go and someone just kind of lifts the veil and goes, oh, and by the way, God is a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, three and one, one and three, okay, moving on. That doesn't actually happen in the Bible. And so a lot of people would say, well, the Trinity is just something that human beings made up and it's confusing and it's not helpful. But you've got to remember that what these bishops were doing was actually countering all these other heresies that they were finding in pagan religion. Because all these pagans are converting to Christianity, and they begin to speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they go, oh yeah, there's like three gods. And they're like, no, there's not three gods. There's one God and three, and they go, I, I, I don't get that. You know, or they encounter the person of Jesus, and you're like, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And you're like, oh, half God, half man, like Hercules. And they're like, no, not really. And so that it's, the, the bishops came together and said, you know what, we need to really kind of hone in on what do we actually mean when we talk about God as a trinity. 
because um, they knew that it was important, so they poured over Scripture and they spent a lot of time in prayer kind of developing this vision of what God is like. And so essentially, the doctrine of the Trinity is this. Uh, one essence, three distinct persons, okay? This is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. One essence, the what, the su- what is God made of? God is made of one substance, but God is three distinct persons, the who of God. And I can actually, maybe you've seen this image before, before I fall off the stage. It's really, I think it's helpful. We see God is Father and Son and Spirit, but the Father is not the Spirit, Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And so there's this idea with God that the three persons of God are co-equal in majesty, they all have this one substance together. There's not a hierarchy within God where it's the Father, He's kind of the big best bit, and then there's the Son, and He's this little bit over on the left, and then the Spirit is something that maybe we kind of interact with on a Sunday morning. But God is co-equal. He's co-eternal. It's not like God was hanging out for a while, and He said, you know what, I really want to have kids. Okay, now there's God the Son, and then Jesus goes off to heaven, and He says, you know what, I'm missing something. I'm going to send you a present, and then He gives us the Holy Spirit. God is co-eternal. God has always been the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is consubstantial, which is a fancy word for saying, of the same substance, of the same stuff. How many of you are confused? You should be. This is, okay, this is confusing and this is weird. Um, but so this is kind of the adjustment that I want to make. That's, that's the technical stuff. That's the theology of Trinity. But I think this is what's so important for us to understand, that we need a change in our attitude when we begin to talk about God as a trinity. Because the trinity is less some sort of a math problem that needs to be solved or figured out or written down, and it's more a beautiful vision of the heart of God. And so I want to invite all of us to kind of make that shift, especially some of you analytical people. That the, the Trinity, Tim is smiling at me back there, one of our engineers. We, we will miss it. We will miss the beauty of the Trinity if we think that it's some sort of math equation that we're supposed to be solving for X. And unless we get it, unless we can describe it accurately, then we can't actually experience it. But rather to recognize that the, the God as Trinity is this beautiful vision of what he's really like. Because a lot of times, theology can sterilize who God is by trying to nitpick all of the little details of what he's like and who interacts with whom and how we're supposed to pray. And when we get into the weeds, sometimes we can miss the larger revelation. And so I've got a couple points that I want to make along that line. Number one, the Trinity reveals to us that God is a loving relationship, outwardly focused and other-centered. The core truth of who God is is that God is a loving relationship relationship. And this is what we see in the persons of the Trinity, always being there, always being together, always loving one another, that God himself, by his very nature, is outwardly focused. God is not selfish where he focuses just on himself as the singular unit. And he's other-centered. He's constantly deferring to the other parts of the Trinity. And so I'm going to show you one example of where we see this in Scripture. This is in 1 John chapter 4. And we can kind of see, you know, the letters of John, they're kind of the, the, the last bit of the Bible before we go into Revelation. And so these are the ultimate conclusions of who God is. If we kind of imagine Scripture is this progressive revelation of what God's like as 
mankind is interacting with God. They're kind of picking up these little snippets and these little understandings. And when John writes his letters, this is like the, the ultimate that we have in Scripture of what God really looks like. And so as I read this, I want you to be listening for that Trinitarian nature, the God in one and in three. And so John writes this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And you see, it's this relational language. And I find it so helpful when we talk about our relationship with God to think about our relationships in our life, husbands and wives and friends and family members. We don't sit and do the analysis when we're talking about the people that we love. We talk about the substance of our relationship. We talk about how we've been affected by them. We talk about the space that has been created for us to affect them. There's this whole different language when we talk about the language of love. And so I think what's so powerful about what John is saying, and twice he says, God is love. This is the punchline. This is the divine ending of Scripture to say this is the revelation of what God is like. We didn't always know that, but now we do because of what God has chosen to do through Jesus. That God has always been love. And if God has always been love, then there's always had to have been someone to love. Before the creation of the world, before you and I existed, before the planet was here, before there were any koalas, there was somebody for God to love. And just imagine if God was one and only one, God could not be love because love is a relational language. Love is a connection. And not only that, if God was one and only one, he would not be inherently outwardly focused and other-centered. God, if God was one and only one, he would be inwardly focused and he would be self-centered because he sees himself as his own highest calling. And before long, we kind of find ourselves stumbling back into those images of the God that lives up to on top of the mountain who just demands our worship and our sacrifice in order to appease this kind of egotistical nature that he has. 
And this is why it's so important that we learn this outwardly focused and other-centered nature of God as opposed to a self-centered God. Because if we are made in God's image, what does that mean for our highest good? What does that mean for your highest good if you're made in the image of God and God is self-centered? That means that the best that you can choose to be is the most powerful, self-centered human being that you can be. Now, how often do we see that playing out in culture? How often do we see that playing out in our lives? Because on some deep level, we believe that that's what God is like. And for us to become more God-like is for us to become more self-centered and power-hungry. And so I think this is what is so dynamic about the, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is true because it's beautiful. A year ago, I did this sermon on the place of beauty within our faith. And, and unfortunately, in the Protestant tradition, we've erased so much of beauty because it's not practical. Because we've fallen back into that trap, I need to be able to explain God accurately in order to convince people that he exists. But what if we can reclaim that place of beauty to make the appeal to what God is like because the vision of God that we see in the Trinity is a beautiful vision. This is a, uh, an, a Russian Orthodox icon that was painted in the 15th century by Andrei Rubilov. And it's a reflection on this story in Genesis 18 where Abraham's hanging out and these three visitors come to Abraham. And Abraham interacts with these visitors in a very strange way in the way that he talks to them. And they all kind of talk to him in kind of this one unified voice. And in the Orthodox Church and for Christians around the world, they kind of look back at that story in the Old Testament and say, ah, perhaps this is actually a vision of the Trinitarian God that had not yet been named. And I love this image of God, I'd like, uh, this as a picture of what God is like, that we have these three persons that seem to be of this one substance, that they're kind of, they're bowing, they're deflecting to one another, they're kind of acknowledging the other person. There's this, this unit or this circle of togetherness and harmony, and if we kind of look over their heads, we see the one on the left, who is God the Father, has this house over top of his head to represent being the Father and welcoming the children home. The, the person in the middle we see is wearing uh, these two colors of cloth. One is this very earthen brown color and one is this kind of heavenly uh, blue color that kind of represents the dual nature of Christ. And over his head hangs a tree as this representation of how God was going to reconcile the world to himself. And then the final person who's in all blue has this mountain over him as the God, the Holy Spirit. As it's the Spirit of God that helps us to ascend the hill of our God so that we can be in relationship with Him. And I love this image of God. Perhaps this might be one of my favorite icons because it speaks to this Trinitarian God who's the vision of unity and peace, of harmony, of mutual love, of submitting to Himself in this beautiful circuit or relationship of love, and this true, genuine humility. I think this is so much more a powerful vision of God than so many of the ones that we've been handed in the past. And so God reveals to us, or the Trinity reveals to us that God is a loving relationship, outwardly focused and other-centered. Number two, the Trinity is a mystery. It's something we experience more than we understand. Some of us, I think, kind of got a foot up on doing God stuff in our Christian journey because mystery was presented to something to us that is not to be afraid of, but is actually an invitation to explore. 
And I think a lot of times when we fall into that re, re, like kind of reductionist way of learning about God, that we have to explain it and accurately describe it and get the math problem right, not only do we miss relationship with God, but there's this burden that if I don't understand this, then I can't experience it. And so we, there's not enough books that we can read. There's not enough podcasts we can listen to because we're just gobbling up all of this information because we're afraid if I don't have enough information, then I might be on the outside of the thing. I might not be able to experience God and his redeeming grace. I have to learn. And, and, and what we find is it's this version of self-righteousness where it's like I've got to do all this stuff to get enough information to present myself to God so that once he gives me the, you know, the great bubble test in the sky to know that I got all the answers right, then maybe I can be in relationship with him. and Maybe I can find a sense of belonging. But within the Christian household, there is this tradition of mystery. And it doesn't, mystery doesn't mean ambiguity. It doesn't mean we don't know anything. We just mean that it's something that we experience over and above what we understand. That we don't even have to describe something to feel it, to experience it, to allow it to wash over us, to change us. And this is what we find in the writings of Paul. We're going to look in Ephesians chapter 3. This is um, in, a, in a letter that Paul's writing to one of his beloved churches. He kind of gives us this vision of a Trinitarian God, but it's really practical language of prayer that he sees the, the Trinity as some, someone that he's interacting with, that he's inviting others into relationship with, rather than doing that thing that I said, kind of pulling back the veil and saying, by the way, God is one substance and three persons, and you don't make this mistake and don't fall into that heresy. He's actually giving us this vision of having this loving relationship with God. So again, I want you to be, as we're reading this, thinking about a Trinitarian God. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And I love, can we, just, can we just pause on that line for a second? To know this love that surpasses knowledge. Just meditate on that one for a second. That you can know something more than you can know it because it's a different language of knowing. It's an experience that kind of goes beyond your intellectual capabilities. It goes beyond your study. It goes beyond your podcast. It goes beyond your books. But the real goal of interacting with God is to know this love on this deep, grounded part of who you are that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
And so Paul, for, on behalf of his dearly beloved church, he prays to the Father, he prays through the power of the Spirit, and he prays in the Son that there would be this deep connection to God as he truly is, that there would be a sweet interaction with each person of the Trinity that gives revelation upon revelation to the church of how much they are loved. And we can ask the questions about the love of God. How wide is the love of God that it breaks down barriers between human beings? All of the little tribes and all of the little walls that we've built among ourselves, Jesus' love breaks all of those things down. That's how wide the love of God is. How long is the love of God that it stretches all the way back to the beginning of creation and it erases all of mistakes of the past? And it reaches all the way forward into this future when God finishes what he started on the cross and he has reconciled all of creation. How deep is the love of God? That God was willing to break himself open. God was willing to die. God was willing to descend into the pits of hell in order to rescue us. That not only did he leave heaven for us, but he also chose to go to Sheol, to the place of the dead, I love that, that vision of the harrowing of hell, that Jesus harrowed hell, that he shook the foundations of hell by rescuing us from there. And how high is the love of God, that God reaches down with his hand of grace and lifts us up into the heavenly places, that he seats us at his right hand, that even right now where you're sitting in Orlando, Florida, at what is it? 11.35 a.m. on a Sunday morning, the realer and truer thing is that you are sitting at the right hand of the Father right now in the heavenly places. That is the height and the width and the depth and the length of the love of God that can only be possible when we understand that God is this beautiful Trinitarian vision of rescue and redemption. And so if God is all about harmony and self-giving at the core of who he is. How do we see ourselves becoming more Christ-like? I love that in that song that Kaylee led us in, it says, if, you know, if, if, this was, if this was your heart to love all of these children, then it's going to be mine too. And we are made in the image of God, and if that's true, those self-giving, outwardly focused, other-centered visions of God, that is actually our DNA. That is how we have been crafted. That is who we have been called to be. And it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's because Christ lives in us. It is because the Father is orchestrating history to bring about that certain future that we are able to enter into our true identities patterned after a Trinitarian God. But it doesn't just stop with you as an individual. How do we envision whole societies of people that are patterned after God's character? How do we see collections of people who have been wooed by a Trinitarian God who's outwardly focused and other-centered? How do we begin to see our relationships with one another? How do we build educational systems on that? How do we build justice systems, real justice? Real justice, not just punishment and retribution, but real justice that's founded upon the justice of a Trinitarian God. For us as a community, do we choose to live into unity in diversity because that's what we see in the Godhead? That we see in this beautiful Trinitarian vision of God 
a vision of total unity and absolute diversity. Understanding our attitude towards each person in the Trinity helps us to grow in our faith. And again, this depends on how you grew up, whether or not you grew up in the church or what your, your earliest visions of God were like in the church, that I think it is very normal and natural for you to gravitate towards one person of the Trinity, maybe at the expense of the others. I was sitting um, with a young lady in our church a couple years ago, and she said, I got to confess to you, I really like the idea of God. I don't know how I feel about Jesus right now. And I said, that's okay. Keep showing up. I'm going to talk a lot about him because I'm really fond of him. But if that's okay, if that's where you're at right now, if your trajectory is to know God more, I believe that you're going to find these new revelations of Jesus that are going to actually add on to your vision of God. For some of us, it was the Holy Spirit. We were terrified of the idea of the Holy Spirit, or, or it was explained away as, ah, yes, the Holy Spirit was this kind of weird mechanization that God had, you know, in the early church that he empowered the apostles, and he did some cool things, and then the Spirit kind of vaporized, and here we are 2,000 years later, you know, which is very convenient and easy if you don't want to believe in miracles and healing and redemption and all these things. If you just want to read your books and memorize your theology, erase the Holy Spirit. That's a great way to do it. But it's really important that we recognize each of us in our journey towards God, who do we naturally gravitate to and who do we, who we maybe we're a little distrustful of or we just don't have enough information of. Because there are different seasons in your journey of faith where your affections are going to be kindled towards one person in the Trinity over and above the others, but only because there's this eye towards Trinitarian worship. Because it's the same in our human relationships. If there, there were parts of our beloved that we see and we go, I'm just not really interested in that bit of you. I don't really want to know that part of you. Like, can you love that person? Maybe. But that love is incomplete. And so for us, when we avoid particular persons of the Trinity, when we explain away their absence in our lives, we're robbing ourselves of knowing the fullness of God. And so I want us to take a moment. We're just going to meditate on these two questions for a second before we go on. Who do you run to? Who's the person in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Who's the one that just at the deepest core of who you are, it resonates and you, you run into them? But who do you run from in this point in your life? Or maybe you don't run from them, but you just kind of tip your hat at them in passing. Maybe you acknowledge that they're real and they're there on some level, but you don't want too much to do with them. We're just going to take some time. I'm going to pray and we're going to meditate on that and just invite the Lord to reveal to us how we see him and perhaps giving us vision for what the next part of our journey looks like. So, Father, we thank you for this vision that we have in Scripture, this vision we have in the early church fathers, in our tradition, in our household of the Trinitarian God. Jesus, we see in your ministry this deep abiding love and submission to the Father and the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are the gift to us, the church, that you have been sent to move in us and through us to empower us, to lift us up into heavenly places. And so, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
would you reveal to each of us right now where do we naturally gravitate and where, if we're honest, we're maybe a little bit indifferent or possibly afraid of who we see in a vision of you. Would you reveal those things to us now? Keep us on the path of journeying into you. That it's not our ability to explain who you are, but it's our radical encounter with the truth of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that awakens us, enlivens us, rescues and redeems us. That in our lifetimes, day by day, we might become more like you, outwardly focused and other-centered. Continue to speak to us, Lord, for we're listening. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we enter back into worship. One of my favorite little subcategories that we'd see in Scripture um, is you've got a whole team on your side. That's another really beautiful aspect of the Trinitarian God. That you don't have to do the rain dance to get this one God on top of a mountain to pay attention to you and to water your crops. But you've got this whole team. It says that the Son is advocating for us even now. It says the Spirit is advocating for us within the depths of who we are right now. You have an entire team on your side, and the team's name is God. And I think that's what Paul says when he says, when, if God is for us, like who can be against us? Like That's a good team to have. And so as we worship, I want you to continue to keep yourself open to allow the Lord to give you new revelation of what he's like in this beautiful Trinitarian vision of God. And so we're going to sing together. You can pray. The space is yours. You can come forward and receive of the table this, this beautiful symbol that we have of this Trinitarian God broken open to welcome us into relationship. And I just pray that the more that we meditate on who God is, the deeper it sinks into our spirits and becomes the fabric of who we are. That everything that we believe, everything we do is, a, is an echo, is a resonance of this beautiful vision of God that we have in the Trinity. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.